The Old Testament reading comes from Genesis chapter 39, verses 1 through 23. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He has come into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph, and showed him steadfast love, and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge, because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. The word of the Lord. One Nation Hope, it's good to be with you this morning as we continue through the narrative of, of Joseph. And before we turn to this text, let us turn together to the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for your scripture. We thank you for the gift that it is. We thank you, Lord, that you use these words to, to call, to craft, to create, to perfect your church, Lord, as we see what you have done for us and ultimately what you have done for us and your son, Christ Jesus. Lord, I do pray that the words that follow would be faithful to the intentions of this passage, Lord, and that you would use 
our exposition of this text, Lord, by the efficacy, by the power of the Holy Spirit to grow our faith, perhaps to give us faith for the first time, Lord, and to conform us into the image of Christ Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. The writer Wendell Berry, he writes this in in reflecting on a summer that he spent living in a cabin on, on the bank of a Kentucky River. Barry says this, That summer, I began to see, however dimly, that one of my ambitions, perhaps my governing ambition, was to fully belong to this place, to belong as the thrushes and the herons and the muskrats belonged, to be altogether at home here. The wild creatures belong to the place by nature, but as a man, I can belong to it only by understanding and by virtue. Barry desires to belong. He desires to be at home in the world. All of the creatures that populate that riverbank, they they fit into the world and they do it so naturally in a way that he does not. They do this without thought. They do it as easily and automatically as all of us take our next breath. But, as Barry explains... We, as humans, can only do this by understanding in in virtue. This is a lifelong effort, and even then, even then, we still feel like outsiders. Even then, we're never at home in this world the way the animals seem to be. And so the question that confronts us is whether this outsidedness, this not-at-homeness, this seeming exile... Is this the natural human condition? Is it natural for us to feel so unnatural in this world? Is it natural not to feel fully at home here? And it's true. When we, when we look around and we think about our lives, uh, they're much better than they could be. A few years ago, Elon Musk, as, as he's wont to do, but a few years ago, he, he made headlines for saying that in the process of working towards settlement on Mars, which is a goal of his company SpaceX, he said, quote, many people will probably die. He said this in reference not only to getting to Mars, but actually in attempting to live upon it. He's he's calling a spade a spade here, I suppose. And expanding on Musk's claim, one article noted the following. The planet Mars is an exceedingly lethal place to visit. Humans could be killed by radiation exposure, and the planet's surface is so low in atmospheric pressure that a person's blood would literally boil if they were exposed to the elements. And it's true that Barry might not feel fully at home on his riverbank, but who could ever feel the least bit at home on Mars? Mars would kill us in seconds. But the thing is that even here, here on Earth, we still die. It may take a a few decades rather than a few seconds, but again, we still die. And, and, And that doesn't strike us. That doesn't seem right either. As far as we know, we can't find food or liquid water on Mars, but... Even here on Earth, we often lack those things. We can't breathe on Mars, but even here, we're often out of breath, 
as we work or toil in some job or pursuit or relationship that always seems to be choked out by thorns and thistles. Yes, where we are now is much, much, much better than Mars. But still, something's not right. And so we, we find ourselves stuck somewhere between Elon Musk's Mars and Barry's muskrat. We don't have the right level of, of musk, we might say. We have to calibrate that. We find ourselves not quite homeless, but we're not fully at home either. We find ourselves in exile. And scripture tells us that this is the basic human condition between Eden and the resurrection. We were kicked out of the good garden of Eden, this true home for humanity, and now we await the full homecoming of the resurrection. But for now, we are in exile. And what does this have to do with today's passage? Quite a bit. Because in today's passage, we encounter for the first time in Scripture what will be an enduring theme in Scripture, forced exile into a foreign land. But again, in Scripture, exile is a much bigger category than this. The topic of exile goes, for, goes on to frame the whole book of, of Genesis, right? In, in Genesis 3, we find out that we are kicked out of Eden. We're exiled from Eden, And from there, Genesis will end with a kind of exile of God's people in Egypt. And the Egyptian exile is not all bad, but it's not all good either. As we will see, God's people will certainly receive good gifts in Egypt, especially with respect to food and land. But they're also going to find themselves at the mercy and at the whim of Egyptian public opinion, which, as we will see in Exodus, will soon turn against the people of God. In Egypt, Joseph and his family, they're neither homeless nor are they fully at home. They're not the muskrat, but neither are they on Mars. In the same way, in our exile, in our kind of cosmic existential exile from Eden, there's still much good. God's grace endures. But so, too, does the corruption of a fallen world. We're not homeless in this world, but neither are we fully at home in it. And so Joseph's exile in Egypt, it brings the general human experience of exile into full relief. And so with these truths in mind, let's look at today's passage under three headings. Ethics in exile, apathy in exile, and encouragement in exile. Let's look at each of those in turn and start with ethics, ethics in exile. Again, as you, you probably remember, Joseph has been sold into slavery into Egypt by his brothers, and he was bought by an Egyptian named Potiphar, who was an officer of Pharaoh. Specifically, he was a captain of the Egyptian guard. And Joseph did not choose this situation. He was simply thrown into it. It was forced upon him. And this is, this is the way of exile. Think about our own lives, our own lives in exile. Often we are forced into situations that we have not chosen. And in fact, we would not choose for ourselves. We find ourselves afflicted with illness and sickness. And and sometimes, sadly, tragically, these are terminal We may apply to job after job after job, but never get that position that we have so long set our hearts upon. 
We may even be rejected by someone whom we long to marry. As children, we may find ourselves in families that fall apart before our very eyes. In a million different forms, in our exile, we will find our hearts broken in ways that have been forced upon us. Ways that we can do nothing about. This is life outside of Eden. This is life in exile. Joseph is forced to go to places he does not wish to go. Same is true for us. Many of the circumstances in our own lives, and in some cases, perhaps even the majority of our life circumstances, they're not circumstances that we ourselves would have chosen. We, like Joseph, are forced to go to places we do not wish to go. We've all been forced into Egyptian, in Egypt in some way, shape, or form. And yes, Egypt is not Mars, but it's not home either. But there's more. In this story, we get an inversion of the ethics of Eden. Joseph is again and again and again propositioned by Potiphar's wife. She repeatedly tempts Joseph to lie with her. Joseph has a master who has called him to steward the whole house, and his master has forbidden only one thing, intimacy with his wife. And and to say the least, this kind of adultery would be a grave violation of the biblical sexual ethic. But also notice this. Joseph is placed in a context where he is called to steward and partake of the many goods of that place. But one particular thing is forbidden. As Joseph declares, My master has put everything that he has in my charge. He has not kept back from kept back from me anything except you, because you are his wife. We have to ask ourselves, does this sound familiar? Have we encountered a scenario like this before in the book of Genesis? And of course, yes, we have. Adam and Eve in the garden. They are called to steward the garden, and they are permitted, they are encouraged to partake of every good thing in the garden except one, the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. This is the one thing that they have been forbidden by their master, God. But of course, at the temptation of Satan, they they reach out and they take and they eat that one forbidden fruit. They sin against their master. And they receive the due punishment. They are exiled from Eden, and now they must live in a fallen world, a world corrupted by sin and death, Corruption and thorns and thistles of all kinds. Outside of Eden, they're not homeless, but they're not at home either. And so what about Joseph? Well, unlike Adam and Eve, Joseph actually follows the commands of his master. In this case, Potiphar. Joseph does the right thing. He does not sin against his master. He rejects repeatedly the temptation to partake of that one forbidden thing. But what happens to Joseph? He does right, but he receives condemnation. Joseph ends up being framed. Finally, Potiphar's wife propositions Joseph when she is alone with him in the house. He again refuses, and this time he flees away, but she grabs his garment, and she goes on to tell the other servants and her husband that Joseph attempted to force himself upon her. 
Then, as events play out, Joseph is placed in prison. Joseph does right, but because of these lies, he receives condemnation. Unlike Adam and Eve, Joseph refuses to partake of that one forbidden thing. But in response to his good conduct, in response to his obedience, he is further exiled from the house into prison. In exile, in exile, you can do good and receive bad. For instance, sometimes the quickest way to get fired from a job is to raise the necessary ethical concerns. Sometimes the quickest way to lose a friendship is to have a hard but sincere conversation in love. Sometimes the quickest way to lose someone's respect is to stand up for your convictions in a self-respecting and respectful way. Sometimes the quickest way to receive bad is actually by doing good. And the reverse is also true in exile. Sometimes the quickest way to get to the top of your field is to step on everyone else. Sometimes the quickest way to get a job is to falsely accuse and attack the reputation of all of the other applicants. Sometimes the quickest way to get wealth, to be comfortable, is to act as greedily as you can. Sometimes the quickest way to keep a client is to withhold information that they should actually know. Sometimes the quickest way to be in charge is to sort of push your way in there and intimidate everyone else. Sometimes the quickest way to get the best grade in the class is simply to cheat. Sometimes, like Potiphar's wife, the quickest way to deal with your guilt is just to lie about someone else. Sometimes the quickest way you sorry, sometimes the quickest way to get what you want in exile is actually by doing bad. And we all know this. Pretty much everyone thinks that the world is full of injustices. They might differ in the particular injustices that they've named, but I've never talked to a single person who says, yep, absolutely, the world is exactly as it should be. Never yet met that person. But why? Well, again, no one feels wholly at home in the world. And very often, this sad state of things, this this unjust state of things, is used by people to to deny and to reject the very notion of God. How could there be a God when things like this are happening, when good receives bad? And sometimes, friends, we all know this, the bad is very, very, very bad. We're not just talking here about professional snubbing. We're talking about a world where things like genocide take place. And the problem of evil is a serious, serious issue. But for now, I want to just focus on one particular part of that problem. That is, the very existence of the problem of evil itself. Why is it that evil would ever strike us as a problem? If this is just how the world is, with all of its many injustices, why would we, as the accidental products of this world, ever see this evil as a problem? Where in the world would we get a notion of injustice? Where in the world would we ever get a notion of good by which we could call these evils to account? Even more, if we ourselves are only the products of the strong eating the weak, then why would the continued devouring of the weak in any form that might take, why would that ever strike us as a problem? That's what's actually got us here in the first place. C.S. Lewis is helpful here. 
He puts it like this as he reflects on his own conversion to Christianity. He writes, My argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe to when I called it unjust? A man feels wet when he falls in water because man is not a water animal. A fish would not feel wet. Lewis attempted to argue away God's existence because of the unjust world that he found himself within. But to say that the world is unjust is to say that the world is different than it should be. But how can we say that the world should be different than it actually is? If there's no God, then the world is simply the way that the world is. And we ourselves, as a product of it, we should feel completely at home in it, just like the animals on Barry's riverbank. We should happily swim through any act of injustice just as happily as the muskrats swim through the water. But we can't. We know that something is wrong here. And as Lewis argues, we know a crooked line because we have seen a straight line. We know we are wet because we are dry. And we know that the world is unjust because we have a memory of justice. We have a sense of eternity, a sense of Eden in our hearts. We know that we are not at home in this world because we can remember. We can still hear that faint, far-off echo of our homeland. The horns of Eden, as much as we might try to suppress them, the horns of Eden still ring in our ears, and we cannot shake Eden's memory. As Lewis goes on to write, this is a good world that has gone wrong but still retains the memory of what it ought to have been. Our problem with evil in this world tells us that there is something beyond this world. Deep down, we are all troubled by the fact that injustices often overcome justice. We're all troubled that the Josephs of the world are so often punished for their good conduct and that the Potiphar's wives of the world get exactly what they want. This reality angers us. We see it as a problem. And the fact that we see it as a problem, that itself shows us that we are not at home here. It shows us that we, like Joseph, are living in a kind of exile. Again, things are certainly not as bad as they could be. There is much, 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 much good in this world. Please hear me say that. Again, this is not Mars. We aren't at home, but we're not homeless either. This brings us to our second point, apathy in exile. In light of our exile, it's easy to respond like Potiphar with, with a kind of apathy. Let's look closely at Potiphar's response to the situation. When his wife tells him, this is the way your servant has treated me, we read this of Potiphar's response. His anger was kindled. And as commentators note, this phrase is open-ended. It's a bit ambiguous. It's a bit unclear. We're not told specifically who it is that Potiphar is angry at. And I believe the text is actually pushing us to understand that he is angry here at his wife. To begin with, the expected punishment would have been the death penalty for Joseph. He has been accused of forcing himself upon the wife of a royal Egyptian official. 
This would be a very, 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 very big deal, and we would expect the severity of the punishment to match the severity of the crime. However, Joseph isn't executed, and instead he's actually placed by Potiphar in the prison for king's prisoners. No prison would be a place where we would want to be confined, but this prison was probably better than all of the other Egyptian prisons. And why might Potiphar do this? Well, Potiphar knows his wife. There's a good chance that he knows she cannot be trusted. And Potiphar knows Joseph. He knows that Joseph can be trusted. Again, he knows his character. He appreciates him. He values him. He respects him. But given the public nature of the accusation, given Joseph's role as a servant, and given the higher status of his wife, Potiphar probably feels that he must act on this accusation. And so I believe there's good reason to suppose that his anger is kindled at his wife for lying and putting him in a situation where he has to send away his very best, his most beloved servant. What does all this mean? Well, Potiphar is the person who is angered at injustice and evil, but he's not angry enough to really do anything about it. To stand up for what he knows is true here would be costly. It would be difficult. It would make his wife furious with him. It would be embarrassing to him. Think of the mockery he might receive if it became widely known that his wife sought adultery with a servant in his own household. He might even receive a punishment from the Egyptian royalty for valuing, for honoring the word of a servant over the word of someone in his own royal family. What kind of dangerous precedent would this set for the Egyptian status quo? No. It's just easier to go along with it. Potiphar tries to make the best of a bad situation. He, he tries to do at least some good with Joseph, but he still doesn't want to rustle any feathers. And of course, we can't forget that Potiphar has bought Joseph as a slave. Potiphar is supporting and perpetu perpetuating the buying and the selling of human beings. Potiphar is that person who is so entrenched in the upside-down world of exile that he just puts his head down and he goes along with it. Potiphar is like the person who knows that things are wrong, but he still participates in these wrong things because really, I mean, what else can you do? And when Potiphar does do right, it's when it's convenient and not too costly to him. He's the person who hides their convictions for the fear of the crowd. He's the person who tells their children to reconcile and then refuses to speak a kind word to their spouse. He's the person who talks a lot about the importance of community and the danger of isolation, and then maintains all of their friendships through social media. He's the person who speaks about the necessity of love and respect, and then joins the ranks of the enraged Twitter mob. He's the person who talks about the importance of a work-life balance, and then comes home every night from work at 10 p.m. And friends, we are all Potiphar in some way, shape, or form. Potiphar knows, and we know, that things should be different. But different is hard. And we ask ourselves, can, can things really even change? It's just, it's just easier to go with the crowd, just to resign ourselves to what seems inevitable. And so Potiphar does not stand up for Joseph. He lets Joseph be punished, but, but, but since it wouldn't be too much skin off of his back, he keeps Joseph from the death penalty and puts him in the least bad Egyptian prison. This is just how the world works, Potiphar thinks. You just kind of have to make the best of it. 
Potiphar tries to make his home in a place that simply cannot be his true home. He's like a man who attempts to build a mansion out of a sand castle. He knows that sand is not the best material. It keeps falling apart, but then he asks himself, what else can I do? Sand is what I've got, so I'm going to make the best of it. And if we apathetically resign ourselves to simply doing the best for ourselves that we can amidst this unjust world, we will all become Potiphar. We will be attempting to live in sandcastles. We will be attempting to make our true home in exile, something that we just can't do. And that brings us to our third and final point, encouragement in exile. Again, as we've said each week, a key verse for understanding the Joseph narrative is this. Joseph's own words, own words of hard-earned wisdom that he says to his brothers near the end of his life. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And we see this dynamic in today's passage. We are told that the Lord was with Joseph in Egypt. And the word for Lord here is is Yahweh, the covenant name of God. God is here with Joseph in covenant in this place of exile. In fact, this passage actually beats us over the head with this reality. Old Testament scholar John Golden Gay, he points out that the name Yahweh, the Lord, it appears only nine times in chapters Genesis 39 through 50. But eight of those nine times is right here in this chapter. God is emphasizing, he's beating us over the head with the fact that right here at the beginning of Joseph's exile, he is with Joseph. God is with him in Potiphar's house. God is with him in the prison. We are even told that Potiphar saw and realized that the Lord was with him. This means that Joseph did not hide his faith. It was obvious to everyone who knew Joseph. Amidst a household of pagans, Joseph was committed to following the one true God. We also see that Joseph excels and succeeds in all the tasks he's been given. Sometimes that Indiana accent comes out, excel. He stewards his responsibility with great care. Again, we're not on Mars, but neither are we homeless. Friends, there is good and important work to do here. In fact, concerning the work that should be done in this world, Christians who recognize that they are in exile, just like Joseph, are actually in the very best place to do that work. But we might not think so. Our first reaction might be to think that Christians who don't see this world as their ultimate home, well, they would be the very worst citizens. As the old saying goes, I'm sure you've heard this, you know, they're they're so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good. But this is definitely not the case. It's because Christians see this world as neither Mars nor as their full home that we can best serve this world. Think about it like this. Perhaps you've had the experience of of putting a huge amount of stress on the holidays. You do everything that you can to to maximize quality time with friends and, and family. You've decorated each corner of the house And you've even sort of cooked the the most complicated food and spreads. But then you you, you put so much weight and emphasis on the holiday that you actually find that you enjoy it much less than just the average regular weekend with your friends and your family. 
all the weight that you've put on that holiday, everything you expect it to do, it actually keeps you from enjoying it. Even more, all of the stress and importance it, you place upon it, it actually keeps you from the purpose of the holiday to enjoy time and fellowship with your friends and family. In fact, maybe you're more likely to snap at your family on this kind of occasion. In the same way, when we recognize the present world as good, but not our ultimate home, we, we don't expect it to do what it cannot do. We can't make our home in a sandcastle, right? But are there ways that we try to make sandcastles of all of the things in this world? For instance, is our profession or career the place where we try to rest our hearts? If so, we, just like the holidays, will expect it to do what it cannot do. This is going to lead to continual disappointment, continual disillusionment, as each professional success, it, it, it doesn't give you that joy that you are expecting. Even more, if, if, if career is our highest aim, then we will be much more likely to do unethical, bad things in order to keep our career or in order to advance our career. If our career is where we try to make our ultimate home, then yes, we will be much more likely to lie, much more likely to push down our colleagues, much more likely to keep silence about things that we know we should speak up about, but then we're quiet just because we feel like we have to follow the higher-ups. We know it's not ethical, but we can't lose our job. We can't lose our home. And because work is our everything, we actually become worse workers. The irony is that when we try to make the sandcastle of our career our home, we actually become workers who enjoy their profession less and do it worse. The irony is that the best way, just like the holiday, right? The best way to rightly steward your vocation is to remember that you are working as an exile. This is the case with Joseph. He takes his professional responsibilities very, very seriously. But he does not replace those with the Lord who is with him. He refuses to act in unethical ways because he doesn't value his standing in Potiphar's house higher than the Lord. If he did, then he would likely do whatever he needed to do, even adultery, to keep his high status. But no, it's precisely because Joseph knows that Potiphar's household is not his ultimate home it's for that reason that he can be the most faithful steward in that home. When Joseph refuses the propositions of Potiphar's wife, Joseph says this, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph knows that an act like this would be a grave sin against God, God who is his ultimate master. And because God and not Potiphar is his ultimate master, Joseph can actually serve Potiphar better. It's for that reason that he's doing what he's doing and refusing to betray his earthly master. Again, there is, sorry, this is the irony, the irony of exile. That when we realize that we are in exile, we steward the world better and we enjoy it more. We don't expect our careers to provide a happiness and a fulfillment that they can never bring. We don't expect good food and good drink to satisfy our every craving. We don't expect marriage and romance to meet our every longing for love and embrace. We don't expect our children's behavior or achievement or resume to justify our existence as parents. 
And because we don't make these very good gifts bear a weight that they could never bear, because we don't expect them to be our ultimate home, we actually love and steward these gifts rightly and we enjoy them more. We love our neighbor more as those who realize that both us and our neighbor are in exile. This is the irony of exile. And again, through every bit of our exile, just like with Joseph, the Lord is with us. In fact, it is the trials of exile, those unchosen circumstances we never would have taken upon ourselves. It is these that make us cling more and more deeply to the Lord. Because of Joseph's hardship, he came to know God in a way that he never would have known him otherwise. And the same is absolutely true for us. For whatever challenge, whatever unchosen circumstance we now are experiencing, ask yourself, and this is a hard question, what can I come to know and learn about the Lord that this experience, that this circumstance can uniquely teach me? It's not an easy question. It's a hard question. But that doesn't mean that it's not a good question. The conditions of exile are meant to make us turn to God, the one in whom alone we can find our true home. But in the end, all of us will face the ultimate hardship and reality of exile, and that is death. Again, we die in this world just like we die on Mars. It just takes us a little bit longer. In fact, if you read Genesis, Genesis, Genesis ends with Joseph making his brothers promise that they will take his bones with them as the people of God leave Egypt and go into the promised land. This is the very end of Genesis. And right after Joseph says that, we read that Joseph dies. After Joseph has his brothers make that promise to take his bones with him, when they leave, we read that Joseph dies. It ends with Joseph's death. But this ending also points us to the ending of exile. Yes, the children of Israel will carry the bones of Joseph to the promised land, and the movement of this bones is important and symbolic. It reminds us that God's, it reminds God's people that Egypt is not their ultimate home. But of course, when this happens, Joseph will still be dead, and how can one who is dead truly be at home? But if we look closely, we find here the promise of the resurrection, the true end of exile. Notice something interesting here. If the resurrection had nothing to do with this present world, then there would be no need whatsoever to move Joseph's bones. However, if the resurrection was just like this world, then Joseph's ultimate home would be a grave plot, which is no true home at all. No, what this shows us is that the resurrection, our true home, is this world. It's the world of Joseph's bones. However, it is this world restored and renewed and perfected. It's this world where Joseph's body and bones are resurrected and never to die again. This and this alone is our true home in the end of our exile. But how can we get there? Well, Human death is a punishment for the sin that we all bear and commit. This is as much true for us as it is for Joseph. So then the question becomes, how can death, how can that ultimate enforcer of exile, death, how can death be overcome? If it can't, then exile just is the inevitable human condition. But scripture tells us this is not the case. 
just like Adam and Eve in the garden, Jesus, Christ Jesus, was given a command in the garden of Gethsemane. And he too was given a command about a tree. Unlike them, though, Jesus obeyed God, the Father. As I've heard it put before, Adam and Eve were told, Obey me about the tree and do not partake of it, and then live. Adam and Eve are told, Obey and live. But what was it that Jesus was told? Obey me about the tree, go to the cross, and die. Obey and die. And so just like Joseph, Jesus obeyed God. And this obedience led to his punishment. And like Joseph, Jesus was simply passed along by a royal official who knew better. Not Potiphar this time, but Pilate. But unlike Joseph, Jesus was the one who obeyed and was truly sinless and truly righteous. And unlike Joseph, whom the Lord was always with, Christ's human soul on the cross, he experienced a kind of wrath, a kind of desertion of God's good and gracious presence. Christ obeys the Father perfectly. And what happens? He experiences the exile that we, that we all deserve. He lives the one true human life, and yet he suffers the punishment of death that we alone merit. However, Christ does this to end our exile. Christ does not stay dead. He's raised again, never to die again. And Christ's present is our future. Christ promises us this ultimate homeland of the resurrection, and he calls us to it, this homeland without death, wherein we will love and commune perfectly with God and neighbor. Christ has overcome death itself. This is the promise of the end of exile, of being truly at home. And there's a great picture of this undoing of death's exile in the resurrection of of Aslan after he dies in the place of Edmund in the Chronicles of, of Narnia. Edmund dies as one who is guilty of a a traitor. Edmund dies as one who is in the place of all of us. Aslan tells the children of a deep magic before time dawned. Aslan tells them, When a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, death itself would start working backwards. And so too for us, because of Christ. Friends, the end of our exile is in sight, and death is already starting to work backwards. We can hear the horns calling us to our true homeland. One day we will be fully at home in this world, and this is the homecoming that Christ promises to all, to all who place their faith in him. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you, Lord, that you are not only calling us home, but you are providing the way through your Son, Christ Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would make us a people of hope, certain, certain, Lord, that one day, with you, we will be fully at home in this world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.